This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Man Alive by G. K. Chesterton. Section 20. Part 2. The Explanations of Innocent Smith. Chapter 2. The Two Curates or the burglary charge part four man i said all stealing is toy stealing that's why it's really wrong the goods of the unhappy children of men should be really respected because of their worthlessness i know nabos vineyard is as painted as noah's ark i know nathan's ewe lamb is really a woolly balam on a wooden stand that is why i could not take them away I did not mind so much as long as I thought of men's things as their valuables, but I dare not put a hand on their vanities. After a moment I added abruptly, Only saints and sages ought to be robbed. They may be stripped and pillaged, but not the poor little worldly people of the things that are their poor little pride. He set out two wine-glasses from the cupboard, filled them both, and lifted one of them with a salutation toward his lips. "'Don't do it,' I cried. "'It might be the last bottle of some rotten vintage or other. "'The master of this house may be quite proud of it. "'Don't you see there's something sacred in the silliness of such things?' "'It's not the last bottle,' answered my criminal calmly. "'There's plenty more in the cellar.' "'You know the house, then?' I said. "'Too well,' he answered, with a sadness so strange as to have something eerie about it. "'I'm always trying to forget what I know, and to find what I don't know.' He drained his glass. Besides, he added, it will do him good. What will do him good? The wine I'm drinking, said the strange person. Does he drink too much, then, I inquired? No, he answered, not unless I do. Do you mean I demanded that the owner of this house approves of all you do? God forbid, he answered. But he has to do the same. The dead face of the fog looking in at all three windows unreasonably increased the sense of riddle and even terror about this tall, narrow house we had entered out of the sky. I had once more the notion about the gigantic genie. I fancied that enormous Egyptian faces of the dead reds and yellows of Egypt were staring in at each window of our little lamp-lit room at a lighted stage of marionettes. My companion went on playing with the pistol in front of him and talking with the same rather creepy confidentialness. I am always trying to find him, to catch him unawares. I come in through skylights and trapdoors to find him, but whenever I find him, he is doing what I am doing. I sprang to my feet with a thrill of fear. There is someone coming, I cried, and my cry had something of a shriek in it, not from the stairs below, but along the passage from the inner bedchamber, which seemed somehow to make it more alarming. Footsteps were coming nearer. I'm quite unable to say what mystery or monster or double I expected to see when the door was pushed open from within. I am only quite certain that I did not expect to see what I did see. Framed in the open doorway stood, with an air of great serenity, a rather tall young woman, definitely, though indefinably artistic, her dress the color of spring, and her hair of autumn leaves, with a face which, though still comparatively young, conveyed experience as well as intelligence. All she said was, 
I didn't hear you come in. I came in another way, said the permeator, somewhat vaguely. I'd left my latchkey at home. I got to my feet in a mixture of politeness and mania. I'm really very sorry, I cried. I know my position is irregular. Would you be so obliging as to tell me whose house this is? Mine, said the burglar. May I present you to my wife? I doubtfully and somewhat slowly resumed my seat, and I did not get out of it till nearly morning. Mrs. Smith, such was the prosaic name of this far from prosaic household, lingered a little, talking slightly and pleasantly. She left on my mind the impression of a certain odd mixture of shyness and sharpness, as if she knew the world well, but was still a little harmlessly afraid of it. Perhaps the possession of so jumpy and incalculable a husband had left her a little nervous. Anyhow, when she had retired to the inner chamber once more, that extraordinary man poured forth his apologia and autobiography over the dwindling wine. He had been sent to Cambridge with a view to mathematical and scientific rather than classical or literary career. A starless nihilism was then the philosophy of the schools, and it had bred in him a war between the members and the spirit, but one in which the members were right. While his brain accepted the black creed, his very body rebelled against it. As he put it, his right hand taught him terrible things. As the authorities of Cambridge University put it, unfortunately, it had taken the form of his right hand flourishing a loaded firearm in the face of a extinguished dawn, and driving him to climb out of the window and cling to a water-spout. He had done it solely because the poor don had professed in a theory a preference for non-existence. For this very unacademic type of argument he had been sent down, vomiting as he was with revulsion from the pessimism that had quailed under his pistol, he made himself a kind of fanatic of the joy of life. He cut across all the associations of serious-minded men. He was gay, but by no means optimist, in the absurd sense of maintaining that life is all beer and skittles. He did really seem to maintain that beer and skittles are the most serious part of it. What is more immortal, he would cry, than love and war? Type of all desire and joy, beer, type of all battle and conquest, skittles there was something in him of what the old world called the solemnity of rebels when they spoke of solemnizing a mere masquerade or wedding banquet nevertheless he was not a mere pagan any more than he was a mere practical joker his eccentricities sprang from a static fact of faith in itself mystical and even childlike and christian I don't deny, he said, that there should be priests to remind men that they will one day die. I only say that at certain strange epochs it is necessary to have another kind of priests called poets, actually to remind men that they are not dead yet. The intellectuals among whom I moved were not even alive enough to fear death. They hadn't enough blood in them to be cowards until a pistol-barrel was poked under their very noses, they never even knew they had been born. For ages, looking up an eternal perspective, it might be true that life is a learning to die. But for these little white rats, it was just as true that death was their only chance of learning to live. His creed of wonder was Christian by this absolute test, yet he felt it continually slipping from himself as much as from others. 
He had the same pistol for himself, as Brutus said of the dagger. He continually ran preposterous risks of high precipice or headlong speed to keep alive the mere conviction that he was alive. He treasured up trivial and yet insane details that had once reminded him of the awful subconscious reality. When the don had hung on the stone gutter, the sight of his long dangling legs vibrating in the void-like wings, somehow awoke the naked satire of the old definition of man as a two-legged animal without feathers. The wretched professor had been brought into peril by his head, which he had so elaborately cultivated, and only saved by his legs, which he had treated with coldness and neglect. Smith could think of no other way of announcing or recording this except to send a telegram to an old friend, by this time a total stranger, to say that he had just seen a man with two legs, and that the man was alive. The uprush of his released optimism burst into stars like a rocket when he suddenly fell in love. He happened to be shooting a high and very headlong weir in a canoe by way of proving to himself that he was alive, and he soon found himself involved in some doubt about the continuance of the fact. What was worse, he found he had equally jeopardized a harmless lady alone in a rowing boat, and one who had provoked death by no professions of philosophic negation. He apologized in wild gasps through all his wild wet labors to bring her to the shore, and when he had done so at last he seems to have proposed to her on the bank. Anyhow, with the same impetuosity with which he had nearly murdered her, he completely married her, and she was the lady in green to whom I had recently said good-night. They had settled down in these high, narrow houses near Highbury. Perhaps, indeed, that is hardly the word. One could strictly say that Smith was married, that he was very happily married, that he not only did not care for any woman but his wife, but did not seem to care for any place but his home. But perhaps one could hardly say that he had settled down. I'm a very domestic fellow, he explained with gravity, and I have often come in through a broken window rather than be late for tea. He lashed his soul with laughter to prevent it falling asleep. He lost his wife, a series of excellent servants, by knocking at the door as a total stranger and asking if Mr. Smith lived there and what kind of man he was. The London general servant is not used to the master indulging in such transcendental ironies, and it was found impossible to explain to her that he did it in order to feel the same interest in his own affairs that he always felt in others' affairs. "'I know there's a fellow called Smith,' he said in his rather weird way, "'living in one of the tall houses in this terrace. "'I know he is really happy, and yet I can never catch him at it.' Sometimes he would of a sudden treat his wife with a kind of paralyzed politeness, like a young stranger struck with love at first sight. Sometimes he would extend this poetic fear to the very furniture and would seem to apologize to the chair he sat on, and climb the staircase as cautiously as the cragsman, to renew in himself the sense of their skeleton of reality. Every stair is a ladder, and every stool a leg, he said. And at other times he would play the stranger exactly in the opposite sense, and would enter by another way, so as to feel like a thief and a robber. He would break and violate his own home, as he had done with me that night. It was near morning before I could tear myself from this queer confidence of the man, who would not die. 
and as i shook hands with him on the doorstep the last load of fog was lifting and rifts of daylight revealed the stairway of irregular street levels that looked like the end of the world it will be enough for many to say that i had passed the night with a maniac what other term it will be said could be applied to such a being a man who reminds himself that he is married by pretending not to be married a man who tries to covet his own goods instead of his neighbours on this i have but one word to say and i feel it of my honour to say it though no one understands i believe the maniac was one of those who do not merely come but are sent sent like a great gale upon ships by him who made his angels winds and his messengers of flaming fire this at least i know for certain whether such men have laughed or wept we have laughed at their laughter as much as at their weeping whether they cursed or blessed the world they have never fitted in it is true that men have shrunk from the sting of a great satirist as if from the sting of an adder but it is equally true that men flee from the embrace of a great optimist as from the embrace of a bear nothing brings down more curses than a real benediction for the goodness of good things like the badness of bad things is a prodigy past speech it is to be pictured rather than spoken we shall have gone deeper than the deeps of heaven and grown older than the oldest angels before we feel even in its first faint vibrations the everlasting violence of that double passion with which god hates and loves the world i am yours faithfully raymond percy oly 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 said mr moses gold the instant he had spoken all the rest knew they had been in an almost religious state of submission and assent something had bound them together something in the sacred tradition of the last two words of the letter something also in the touching and boyish embarrassment with which inglewood had read them for he had all the thin-skinned reverence of the agnostic moses gould was as good a fellow in his way as ever lived far kinder to his family than more refined men of pleasure simple and steadfast in his admiration a thoroughly wholesome animal and a thoroughly genuine character but wherever there is conflict crises come in which any soul personal or racial unconsciously turns on the world the most hateful of its hundred faces english reverence irish mysticism american idealism looked up and saw on the face of moses a certain smile it was the smile of the cynic triumphant which has been the tocsin for many a cruel riot in russian villages or medieval towns oly 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 said moses gould finding that this was not well received he explained further exuberance deepening on his dark exuberant features always fun to see a bloke swallow a wasp when he's corfin up a fly he said pleasantly don't you see you've bunged up old smith anyhow if this parson's tale's okay why smith is odd he's pretty odd we find him elopin with miss gray best respects in a cab well what about this mrs smith the curate talks of with her blasted shyness transmogrified into blighted sharpness miss gray ain't been very sharp but i reckon she'll be pretty shy don't be a brute growled michael moon none could lift their eyes to look at mary but inglewood sent a glance along the table at innocent smith 
he was still bowed above his paper toys and a wrinkle was on his forehead that might have been worry or shame he carefully plucked out one corner of a complicated paper and tucked it in elsewhere then the wrinkle vanished and he looked relieved end of section twenty end of chapter two